This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Charlie Hurd, I'm so glad he is here. He's in studio. Thomas Sowell at the bottom of the hour, one of the greatest minds in America. Fantastic personal biography. Now in his 90s, brand new book, Social Justice Fallacies. You need to read it uh, to arm yourself for the next um, for the next tailgate you're in, the next family discussion you get into, to understand where America was and where we are and what does help and doesn't help. And it's he looks at this thing called facts which is an interesting thing because not many people do that today. Before we get to the great Charlie Hurt, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. You need someone who can unite the conference and I think just as importantly unite the conservative and Republican movement across this country. Uh, that's what I think I can do. That's why I'm running for the job. Uh, Jim Jordan, moments ago, on with us. Is that with us? We actually took that from our interview? Okay, thanks. Uh, the speaker search begins in earnest. The folly of the McCarthy ouster and the contenders who want the job. Number two. No, I'm, there will not be another foot of wall constructed on my administration. Um, I'm going to make sure that we have border protection, but it's going to be based on making sure that we use high tech capacity to deal with it. Build the wall. That's not Trump talking. That is that guy named President Biden. Try Mayorkas, it's his new policy. Democrats are really doing what we all knew they had to do. And they all are concluding what we all knew already, and they probably did too. Walls work and the border is being blitzed as yet another Dem mayor heads down. And I'm looking at the footage right now uh, to set his foot in Central and South America to tell everyone not to come and find out why they are coming. Number one. They made up a fake case. They're fraudulent people. And the judge already knows what he's going to do. He's a Democrat judge. In all fairness to him, he has no choice. He's run by the Democrats. Gone too far. Even Trump critics agree that get Trump to agree that to get Trump movement is out of control. Now it seems the FBI is even targeting Trump supporters. The effect? He is lapping the GOP field, beating Biden in battleground states while they try to bankrupt him in the fall and jail him in the spring. I wish I was exaggerating. Charlie, I'm not exaggerating. No, Am I not. right? No, I you're mean, not. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. No, yeah, because they they don't have any other option. And and all this, uh, you know, for months we've been hearing from like the uh, the White House and their stooges that oh, who they really want to face next year is Donald Trump. They're doing everything they can so they can face Donald Trump. That was a lie because just about everything they say is a lie. Uh, but it's a particular lie with this because uh, I think that whether they realize it or not. Um, uh, Trump is going to Trump is going to destroy these people if he winds up with the nomination and he's going to destroy it. He's going to destroy them even worse because of these tactics, because these tactics say so much more about them than than they do, you know, than they do about him. What's interesting is obviously they want to take him down and don't tell me that they knew it would build him up. I am not convinced of that. 
There's yeah. no way they thought by going after him civilly, taking a case yeah. which reportedly was was kicked to the curb by the attorney general in the state, the state district attorney. They said there was nothing there. So the attorney, so uh, Letitia James goes, no, I'll take it. You'll take it. You'll take it civilly. We're going to do an investigation. We're going to pour over his books and find out if he was exaggerating how much he's worth. Really? You're going to take him to court on that? And now with a simple judge who's a left-wing judge, we know it. Pictures of him and Schumer, picture of him, Schumer, <laughs> and his aide. We know about this guy. We have him speaking at Columbia University talking about how he has to trump the, pun intended, trump the jury sometimes because they're kind of dumb. And now we watch this yesterday. Do you know what was happening in court yesterday? He was getting mad at the Trump attorneys for going too <laughs> slow. Really? Sorry. His whole fortune is at stake. You have a three-month trial already. I didn't know you were in a rush. <laughs> no, it's amazing, though, because, I mean, these people, they do believe in hard power. And uh, so the idea of eliminating an opponent through hard power is the way they it's the way they operate. That's how they think. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think that this it probably is a little bit surprising to them. The, the notion that they can go after the guy and he becomes more and more popular because that's not sort of in their that's not in their game plan. They don't that's not how they sort of normally operate. And the other thing is. You know, it's kind of interesting. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, whether you like him or you don't like him, or, or no, whether you love him or you hate him, and it's usually one or the other. Um, what's interesting is the rest of people, and this is true about Democrats and Republicans in Washington. Most people in Washington don't generate a, a, the anywhere near the passion that this guy does. And because of that, I think it's confusing to a lot of people. They don't know how to handle him. They don't know. They don't realize that that some people love him so much that if when you attack him, he, it's only going to make him more popular. But the other thing that I think is kind of strange that they fail to understand, and I think this is, and I think a lot of people in our business fail to understand this too. A lot of people who really don't like Donald Trump will end up voting for him. Uh, now, I think the, the only analog to that for Biden is there are going to be some people who who hate Trump so much. That they'll vote for Joe Biden. They'll vote for anybody. They will. But um, but I think that the that, that the advantage going on Trump's side in that in that is far greater because you have a lot of people who are just like pumping gas at a gas station and they're like, yeah, he's a jerk or whatever. And then it's like, but, yeah, I'm going to vote for him. Why? Yeah. Because I'm paying four dollars a gallon. Of See, gasoline. the be- the best ad for Donald Trump is Joe Biden's policies. Ex- oh, Precisely. The border. Please tell me anybody who thinks the border was worse under Trump or they wasn't doing everything possible to control it. Number two, gas and energy prices. And number three, our place in the world uh, overseas. And then you look at inflation up 17 percent since he took over, since uh, President Biden took over. He doesn't seem to be tacking it. And we also have I'm, I haven't figured out how, why we have a lot of labor strikes. I don't know if you know that <laughs> the actors, the writers, the healthcare workers. And the UAW, I thought this guy was Mr. Union. Yeah. It seems like the unions are pretty yeah. pretty upset. Well, of course, and what, what is the underlying thread that runs through all of these strikes? Inflation. All of these people are not th- – th- their paychecks have dropped by 20 percent, 30 percent. And they, th- it's devastating for them. And so that's why – you know, so that's not fr- – that's not labor-friendly under any circumstances. But I do think it's kind of interesting. You know, the whole reason Donald Trump won – in 2016, again, missed, I think, by a lot of people in the press, 
um, is because of the issues. He won on the issues at the end of the day. He talked about things that nobody in the Democrat Party, it's why he won the Democrat nomination, and it's why he won against Hillary Clinton, because he was talking about issues, and he was on the right side of those issues um, that, that po- most politicians hadn't talked about in decades. And then fast forward to today, and the issues are even more in his favor, as you pointed out. Because of the failure. If, if yeah. his policies worked and gas went down and electric cars went, uh, were affordable and people loved them and the border was settled – and the border alone is enough. Right. If the border was great, imagine, imagine if the walls didn't work. Imagine and, if his policies did keep people away. And, and, and this is one of the things that, you know, I, I, you know, I get why people don't like Trump. But I, what I don't understand is why politicians don't learn from him and steal from him. If, if I were to – the one criticism I would have for House Republicans right now is that, that, that what, you know, we knew that the, the, everything that's happened this week was going to eventually happen to the House. The minute McCarthy got elected with a five-seat majority. I actually was, didn't. I actually didn't. It was going to wind up either with a government shutdown or a, uh, a you know a, an impasse like this. The only way to get through it is to make it about something. If you're going to have a government shutdown, make it about the wall. Make it about – or spending. Make it about inflation. You have to make it about something, and you fight it. To the end, and everything has to be about that, so that when Democrats at the uh, you know when when it comes to a government shutdown, and Democrats refuse to right, they'd have something to, to say. What you right to seal a, the border unless you p- paid for Ukraine or unless you did something else, you could just say, okay, well that's not the deal here, so get on it or go away, and then and then they're the ones that shut the government down because they right. don't want to seal the border. I, I want people to understand that Trump was really angry yesterday and the day before when when they fa- they find out the statute of limitation should play a role in this case that the most of the stuff they're bringing charges up happened prior to 2014, and they, they everyone agrees the statute of limitations 2014, but now they. See Say and you know we need a lawyer here, a lawyer for a lawyer. Just come out and say, but we were able to take into account what he did prior to 2014 in deciding if he's guilty. Are you crazy? So yeah, this is not- driving him nuts. So <laughs> he says, here, here's what he's saying. Cut one. I'd rather be right now in Iowa. I'd rather be in New Hampshire, South Carolina, or Ohio, or a lot of other places. But I'm stuck here because I have a corrupt attorney general that communicates with the DOJ in Washington. Keep me nice and busy because I'm leading Biden in the polls by a lot. Mr. He's not wrong. It's total election interference, and this get whole, used to it. You know what the fall is going to be? Like? I mean, know what oh the yeah. spring is going to be like? But but also with like the gag orders. I mean, the gag orders are you, you know I, I, I get you know I, I mean it, it, all of this is absolute ridiculous clown show theater it's so absurd and and when you have a judge making these rulings like at the outset that are absolutely devastating for uh, any company and by the way any company that's remaining in new york city that isn't like doing real, a real point. estate searches Great point. to leave absolutely. i don't i don't know why anybody would stay around but the in terms of of you know Let's say that this were a, a real trial with a real judge and you had a ga- gag order. I understand gag orders. But you know when gag orders don't work? In an election campaign. And, and you know, you know and, and I think that he could 
I, well, they're I, talking about the gag order. There's going to be sanctions. Okay, going to be sanctions. Well, you already you already took right. you, you already theoretically took two hundred fifty million dollars from him. Are you going to put him in jail? Yeah. Well, it's not. It's a civil trial. It, so he challenged him yesterday. He called out everybody right away. Yeah. So it, it, basically, this is the Animal House primary, and uh, the the judge is going to have to put Trump on double secret probation. And uh, I don't think it's going to have any. They don't effect. want him to show up. And Letitia James is trying to fight back. Tell me if you think How this. How funny is that? Uh, yeah. He tell keeps me if, showing up. Uh, let me hear you. Hear she followed up yesterday. Cut four. I will not be bullied. <laughs> so Mr. Trump is no longer here. The Donald Trump show is over. This was nothing more than a political stunt. A fun raising stop. Well, he is raising a lot of funds off it. And, oh, yeah. and by the way, it, it's not over. Yeah. And she might pretend it's over. I'm just wondering, who is her series of advisors that told her that didn't play this out to understand where it's going to go? They just go, well, it's going to convict him, take his money, take his stuff, and just further diminish him. And now she doesn't understand he's going to fight back. She doesn't understand how ridiculous this looks. And I, mean, she's, I imagine she's an intelligent person. You had to go to law school and pass the bar. You had to get this job and set up a campaign to win in a Democratic state. So did anyone say, listen— uh, Miss James, this could go bad for you. This, uh, this could you you can't compete with Trump on this. There has not, not been any evidence that she's an intelligent person, and I don't. And and it's amazing. Highly educated. It's okay. Yeah, uh, but it's amazing how dumb you can be and get elected to public office. Uh, and you know, I I, I honestly, I, I there's, a, I mean, I I can't imagine that. She has advisors who are advising her on any of this, except – and it's this blind – it's this psychosis. It's like it's like the government should come up with like a, a vaccine for Trump derangement syndrome. Fox News contributor Charlie Hurd is here and Washington Times columnist, same guy, two jobs. Uh, so he gets paid well. He doesn't even need to do this show. Uh, when we come back, I'm who so you rich. think is going to mur- – that's true. Who you think – and I'm going to take all your money. Uh, who do you think – because you're in New York. Uh, who do you think is going to emerge as the next speaker? We'll discuss with Charlie in a moment. Brian Kilmeade Show. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You need someone who can unite the conference and I think just as importantly unite the conservative and Republican movement across this country. Uh, that's what I think I can do. That's why I'm running for the job. I like the job I had. Uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Chairman of the Select Committee on the Weaponization of Government, doing the work there. But I do think we have to have someone who can bring our team together. I think I'm best equipped to do that. The eight people who voted in a way that I, I disagreed with, yeah. we got to bring them into the fold. I think I'm best equipped to do that so that we can then go do the things we told the American people we would do for them. So that was Jim Jordan with Fox and Friends with us uh, one hour ago. He's running for speaker. Also, Steve Scalise is running for speaker. We have a, a few other people that are going to put their hat in the ring. It uh, doesn't look like... a. Elise Stefanik has made up a decision, uh, made up her mind yet, but other people that are on the list include President Donald Trump, 
<laughs> Robert uh, Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, Patrick McHenry, the acting president uh, speaker, and Tom Cole. But Tom Cole, has already said, he doesn't want it. Uh, they say Congressman Garrett Graves might want to put his hand, hat in the ring. What do you think, uh, Charlie Hurt? Uh, well, so I love going through all of them. The idea that Democrats would dump Speaker McCarthy and then wind up as Don- with Donald Trump as Speaker of the House is one of the funniest things that I could ever possibly imagine. And, I mean, you'd have to roll in, like, you'd have to have, like, um, a, an entire fleet of ambulances outside the House in order to uh, treat all of the heart attacks that Democrats would have if Donald Trump came in there as Speaker of the House. So for that reason alone, I kind of like the idea of uh, Donald Trump. But, uh, you know, he's more of an executive type. I don't know that a legislator is would be really his jam. Um, that's just my take on it. Um, so he's out. He's not legitimate uh, because he's busy anyway running for president. So, <laughs> right. so what do you think? But it's a. Do you but think it's Jim still Jordan a really could bring fun somebody together? To talk about. Do you think Jim Jordan could bring somebody yeah. people so, together? So, Ken McCarthy right, so, can. Right, so serious. So you, you don't want to play fantasy games. I was really. I had. I, I, I have. We have, I have, got three minutes. Okay. 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 So Jim Jordan is the guy that can really bring everybody together. Um, McHenry. Um, Steve Scalise. They're all really fantastic. They would all be very good. But um, but Jim Jordan is one of these guys who understands how the House works. He understands how to make it work. This is a guy. And remember, you know, and, and going back to the Trump thing, you know, the even better possibly than having Donald Trump as speaker is the idea that Democrats dumped Kevin McCarthy in the middle of a session and then wind up with actual Jim Jordan. People forget Jim Jordan was Matt Gates about eight years ago in terms of how much people in the House hated him. And Dem- he was like the most extreme, right-wing, scary. John Boehner. John yeah. Boehner would say that. And he, and exactly. And, and it, so would half the caucus. And Democrats despised him because he was a fighter and he wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't let go. And so the idea that they're going to get in bed with Matt Gates, dump Speaker McCarthy, and then wind up with Jim Jordan is hilarious. But then he would also be extremely effective. He is. There's nobody who understands the that rules. word. Is you really believe that? Because I, Jim I, Jordan, because yeah. you just got to be effective. It doesn't mean you're like, oh, he's a good guy. He's charismatic. Yeah, but, he's smart. But, but yeah. you got to be effective. Well, and 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 again, I, I think we, we were just talking about this. You, you know, you have to be effective. You're not going to get anything done, like legislatively, that the Senate doesn't agree to. The you have to be willing to let Democrats shut down the House because they don't want to fund the border or because they are, are insistent upon uh, you know, spending money we don't have that causes inflation. You have to define the rest of Congress about one thing, either the border or inflation. And inflation is spending, and you and you and everything you do is about that, and you shut everything down except that. And if Democrats want to shut the government down, you have to go in there willing to shut government down for six months. Can if he, that's what Democrats can want. he get a moderate to agree with him? Can he get Gates to agree? That's the key. Can you can oh, you in, see in his in the caucus? Absolutely, he he is a changed man in terms of that. People love him. I like him. I'd hate to lose him on oversight. Oh, uh, me too. Yeah. He needs that, to get a jacket, though. He needs to get a sports jacket. We can, Maybe he won't give in could, on that. We could that's, go, that's a no-go. We could go, we keep could go to Goodwill. And keep your gavel. With- <laughs> Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back. Uh, joining me now is Thomas Sowell, author of a brand new book called Social Justice Fallacies, one of the re- most respected minds and voices in the country today. And it's my privilege to have the multi-New York Times bestseller as our guest. Uh, Professor, welcome back. Um, good being back. Uh, first off, tell me about what do you mean by social justice fallacies? There's some truths that aren't truths, I, I guess. Well, uh, I think I would say most of the truths uh, in that in that uh, vision uh, are, are not true. Uh, one of them is, for example, that there's something very strange about uh, different groups, whether by race, sex, or whatever, uh, have have very different representation in different kinds of uh, institutions and activities, and that therefore something sinister must be going on. Uh, in point of fact, disparities are just virtually universal. As I mentioned in the, in the book itself, uh, you can read reams of social justice literature and not encounter a single example of a country where uh, people from different groups are equally represented in different occupations or, or activities. And, and, and that's true if you go back to whether you're looking at, at countries around the world today or you're looking back through history, you know, for, for over a thousand years. So what people want to do is say, oh, the, the reason why Hispanics aren't big here and, or blacks aren't big here or uh, people in the, uh, you know, in the Midwest aren't doing what here is discrimination. They want to say it's racism. When you say there's a logic behind almost all of it and that we can't oh, script outcomes, we can only script opportunities. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's right. Uh... Because, because the outcomes, among other things, depend upon what the individuals themselves want to do. Uh, one of the examples I've often used is uh, imagine if some uh, a, a, a black baby is born in the, in the middle of the ghetto uh, with uh, muscles identical to those of Rudolph Nureyev, the great uh, ballet dancer. The chance of that kid becoming another Rudolph Nureyev must be one in a thousand, if, if that high. Because the whole, he's not going to grow up oriented towards that kind of thing. And, and one of the things that bothers me back when, they, when people talk about the days when they had ability grouping in the schools, and it wasn't really ability grouping, it was outcome grouping. Because when you have some students who really don't care about school one way or the other, I don't know how you know what his ability is. Exactly, uh, how they apply themselves. But yet they, they look at grotesque scores and they judge what kind of teacher you are, what kind of school system you're in. You also say there's just certain things that are universal, and it has to do with the environment. It doesn't mean that society's uh, unequal or people are trying to hold you down. So, for example, you bring up, you know, why aren't more Hispanics uh, in the tech industry? There must be a bias. There must be a reason. There is a reason, but it's not bias, right? There are more Asians in that area because there's a higher number of uh, uh, Asians with degrees in engineering. That's That's not an unfair advantage. That's just a fact. And that, yes, and the other thing too is that the idea that we should resent people who have uh, 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 who are doing better than we are. I mean, one one of my favorite examples personally is uh, is basketball. Now, when when I, when I uh, tried to play basketball as a teenager, I was really awful. I mean, I, I, I was lucky to hit the backboard, you know, not never mind the basket. Now, but I, if I were into social justice, I would then hate Michael Jordan because he's such a great basketball player. Actually, I was a big Michael Jordan fan because I realized that he, he really could do some stuff. Uh, but but there's an idea that uh, when someone like say, say Bill Gates comes along and becomes a multimillionaire, that he's somehow subtracting 
from the, 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 the uh, wealth of, of the rest of the society. But there's no fixed or pre, uh, predestined wealth out there. And he's probably created trillions of dollars of wealth around the world. And, that, and if he, he becomes a multi-billionaire out of it, so be it. But to all those other people who can do uh, any number of things better with a computer than they can without it, all those people benefit uh, uh, financially and otherwise. See, I, I, and we're talking to Thomas Sowell, and that people might be saying, listen, well, that's just conservative thought. That whole uh, that economic thought is, uh, you know, out of the success, you have other people that work for you. Like I might work for Bill Gates and then I might become a manager there. I might learn. I might split off and get my own company, hire other people because I was able to uh, go be a part of a great organization. And that's the theory. So Bill Gates becomes richer and I have an opportunity to do the same thing because the Microsoft exists. Oh, oh I, I, absolutely, and, and uh, as, as far as conservative thought, uh, I have I have no uh, uh, objection to people having whatever kinds of opinions they do have. What what troubles me a lot is that we have notions that catch on in some intellectual elites, and, this, and these notions are treated uh, as if these were, were demonstrated facts. In many cases. Uh, the, the, when, you, when you look at the data, you find that the exact opposite happens compared to what they had promised. For example, the, the, the sex, putting sex education into the schools, which is not a new thing, by the way. Uh, what was new is the parents found out about it because of COVID had, had led to a lot of home, home uh, schooling. Uh, but sex education came in on a mass scale in the 1960s, and it came in with a promise that it was going to reduce to a teenage uh, teenage pregnancy and uh, uh, teenage venereal diseases. Uh, and if you go look at look at the facts, the fact is the teenage pregnancies and teenage venereal diseases were going down uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and and, and not, as of 1960, the uh, um, infection rate for syphilis was among teenagers was half of what it had been in 1950. Uh, pregnancy rates are going down. You brought in sex education; all of those things immediately reversed and shut up. And we've not, and, and, and they've not come down since then. Similarly, with crime, especially homicide, Hom- homicide rates uh, for black males in the United States uh, went down by 18 percent in the 1940s. Went down by another 22 percent in the 1950s. In the 1960s. The federal courts, the Supreme Court especially, created all sorts of new rights for criminals, changed the whole nature of criminal law. And instantly, the murder rate tripled and doubled double from 1963 to 1973. So you could run through a whole list of things like that where you're supposed to produce a good result from this wonderful new bright idea. And in fact, the fact that they all show that things got worse. So, uh, Thomas Sowell, I know that you tell the story about growing up and that you grew up in Harlem and that you said you never even heard a gunshot in Harlem. But yet we always had the Second Amendment. Oh, my gosh, yes. You know, out here here, uh, in California, there's a place, uh, East Palo Alto, which uh, some de- a few decades ago had the highest murder rate in the, in, in the country. Uh, the next, next, the next, the next year, the murder rate was way down. And so the question is: Did they discover the root causes of crime? You know, uh, did they get rid of all injustices? 
No, they put more cops in there, and the homicide rate drops. Uh, and, and a number of places, people people pointed out things like this, said, oh, it was amazing, as if it's some great coincidence that when you send in a lot of cops, GOP people get killed. Yeah, and that was so weird that you're describing this. I almost think you're talking about today. Uh, we think the problem was there's too many people in jail and that it's not fair to poor people that they can't afford bail. So now we have zero cash bail. And unless you're a violent criminal, you get to stay out of the court. You, you get to stay out and be free until your day in court and you see the results. And now instead of backing off on this, Illinois just started it. California is reaffirming it. And New York is trying to get out of it. Well, at least in New York, they they, they looked at the data. But what? But, but. Politics is a strange institution. Uh, politics is an institution where you can you can end your whole career just by admitting the truth that you that you made a mistake. And in the economy, for example, you know when when uh, Coca Cola tried to change the flavor, and they thought that was a bright idea. Uh, when people started rather stopped buying Coca Cola, suddenly the, the choice between the people who ran the company was: Are we going to pretend that, the, that we were right, or are we going to stay here and, and go bankrupt? Or they decided they'd, they'd admit being right and go back to the old cola, old, old cola flavor. Yep, Thomas Sowell, unbelievable book, unbelievable intellect, and I think the way he looks at American society today. You got to read this book to understand where we're at and what the reality is from tax cuts to the way people view different ethnic groups. When we come back, more for Thomas Sowell. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. We're talking to Thomas Sowell here. His book is now out. It's called Social Justice Fallacies. And believe me, these are conversations that people have, and they give their opinion. But what, what, what you have done, uh, uh, Professor Sowell, is you looked back at the stats and you look at the results through time in our favorite country, in this country. And hopefully we'll learn from it because you have no agenda. You just want to get to the bottom line and see if we could change education the way people are viewed and stop blaming everything on prejudice, racism, and sexism. And I will, this week I'm reading the paper today getting ready for this interview, and I see this story. In New York, they're looking to raise taxes on high-income earners. They think they deserve another 5% income uh, 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 tax on what they make, over $250,000, another 7.5% of people who make over $323,000. Now, the result has been what? People who make a lot of money, 26 to 45 especially, are leaving this state of New York because they're being taxed too high. What is wrong with the thought of taxing the rich because other people need more money? Oh, my goodness. If, you know, one of the most successful uh, uh, attempts to uh, actually one of the most successful programs to get money from high income people was done in the 1920s. Uh, at, after the Woodrow Wilson administration, uh, the top tax rate was 73 uh, percent. It was 
pure Republicans uh, in the 1920s. And back in those days, Republicans had some kind of principles. Uh, but uh, they came in and they, and they reduced the, t- the, the tax rate, to, top tax rate to 25%. Great outcry that this is tax cuts for the rich. In point of fact, the federal government collected more revenue at 25% than they had ever collected at 73%. Uh, because at 73%, people put their money into tax exempt securities and it wasn't taxed at all. Uh, and, and so one figure that I remember is uh, at the beginning, people who, who made a, a million dollars a year uh, paid five uh, percent of all the income tax revenue. After they cut the cut the tax rate to 25 percent, people who were making a million dollars a year paid more than 15 percent of all the tax re- revenue. Right. And, then, and for the simple reason that the. Uh, Twenty-five percent of something is uh, uh, larger than seventy-three percent of nothing. Understood. And and the other thing that you you always talk about is people think you're going to just take their money and they're not going to do anything. Like, of course, if you're going to take seventy-five percent of my money, I'm going to put it someplace else where you can't get it. I know how hard it took to earn it. And what we always hear from this president in particular is, I'm not for you being well. I'm not. I don't care if you're going to be wealthy. You can do that, but just pay your fair share. That bothers you a lot. What do you? What is fair share? Well, they will never define it because it has no meaning. It's what it's. it's, all, it's, it's someone once asked Samuel Gompers, the great labor leader, "Well, what 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 does labor want?" He said, "More," and that's true of politicians. They want more, so they they, they can never tell you what the fair share is or on what basis you would figure it if if, if you could. Quite aside from whether you'll ever collect it. So, uh, Thomas, the other thing you you talk about too is civil rights legislation and what it meant. Uh, Was there a need? Absolutely. You know, in 1865, uh, we ended the Civil War. Reconstruction kicks in. We have the Compromise of 1877. We take a huge step backwards with the end of Reconstruction, essentially, uh, separate but equal, and the Jim Crow laws come into effect. But the one thing that was happening, as evil as it was, the black family was intact. And as much as no one will ever make excuses for back of the bus, separate water fountains, no one will ever say that that'll ever be okay. The one thing about the African, the black family, can't even say African-American, could be Caribbean American, doesn't matter, is that the family was intact. How important was that family unit in retrospect? Oh, it was huge. It was huge. And you can tell that by what happened when, when the family disintegrated. Uh, there's, a, there's a monumental study called The Black Family and Slavery and Freedom by Herbert Gutman. Anyone who wants to get some facts as distinguished from rhetoric, rhetoric should read that. The, there, were, there, were, there were heart-rending stories after, after the end of slavery where many people began looking for their relatives who had been sold somewhere else. And uh, being illiterate, uh, they, they would have someone write write letters for them. They would send them to some local church where they thought maybe a, a son, a brother, or a cousin was, and then these would then be read out the church. And so the, the, the enormous uh, struggles to, to reconstitute families that had been split by slavery itself going on for decades after the Civil War. And, and today we have places where, you know, there, there are women on, on welfare who've had uh, children by a, a number of men, none of whom take any interest in them, even though the kid is right, right down the block. And that is not peculiar to blacks, by the way. The very same pattern exists in uh, in, in England, uh, uh, and 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 to the very same degree, uh, and, and there the underclass is predominantly white. 
so they have no they have no racism to face. They have no legacy of slavery, and, and they have the exact same phenomenon. You have it in the schools as well as in the families, and so the, 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 the seizing upon this historical tragedy to as you, to explain everything leaves out the fact that the black family in 1940. Uh, more than four-fifths of all black children were raised in two-parent families. Before that century was over, it was down, you know, to uh, to, to 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 less than less than less than less than a third. So this this happened after the welfare state came in. So as you see, 1960s meant to help. Uh, the stats are undeniable. They didn't, and that's what Tim Scott's saying. That's what Thomas Sowell's uh, research reveals. It's all in his book, Social Justice Fallacies. It's hard to believe that he's in his 90s. Uh, what a successful life. What a, what a great mind. Uh, and so much more. Meanwhile, uh, we're watching the events that are happening today. Uh, we're seeing right now behind the scenes uh, uh, speaker candidates. It looks like the front runners early on are Jim Jordan. It looks like Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise has already met with the very powerful 28-member Texas caucus. And he's meeting with the Florida caucus to try to get them to vote for him. I did see him in the hallway, Steve Scalise, with a mask because he's going through horrendous treatment and uh, walk with a cane. I, I understand that why he wants this, but, man, it's going to be taxing on the body because with the speakership, you got to travel and you got to raise money. These, this is what we could say so far. In the Jim Jordan camp, Thomas Massey, Daryl Issa, Mike Carey. Uh, Mike Carey has supporting Jordan. Now also in the Scalise camp, by the way, Donald Trump has Marjorie Taylor Greene. In the Scalise camp, he's got uh, the support of uh, Vern Buchanan. He's chairman of the 20-person uh, delegation from, uh, from Texas. So that is indeed going to help. Excuse me, from Florida. So that's going to help. And we'll see what he can do. Now, Steve Scalise was not great friends with Kevin McCarthy. He was not voting to get him out, but they evidently haven't had a good relationship since 2018. Uh, Jim Jordan got along with everybody, it seems. And even though he came in and was a bit of a, uh, a disruptor, he hasn't been lately, and people are in awe of what he does on the Oversight Committee. My feeling is no one can replace him on the Oversight Committee and as be, and be as effective. Same with Paul Ryan. No one can replace him on Ways and Means, and they got rid of him as Speaker. He kind of quit himself. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. This hour, we're going to be joined uh, by Mark Thiessen, who's standing by, Tom, uh, and more from uh, Thomas Sowell. Uh, at the bottom of the hour. So that'll be great. Uh, the author of Social Justice Fallacies, if there's a smarter guy in America, I really don't know who it is. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. You need someone who can unite the conference and I think just as importantly unite the conservative and Republican movement across this country. Uh, that's what I think I can do. That's why I'm running for the job. That is Jim Jordan saying, make me speaker. Well, that's a big change, isn't it? Well, the speaker search starts in earnest. Steve Scalise also in. We'll review the other candidates. Number two. No, I'm, there will not be another foot of wall constructed in my administration. Um, I'm going to make sure that we have border protection, but it's going to be based on making sure that we use high-tech capacity to deal with it. And guess who's building the wall? Not Trump. No, it is Joe Biden. At least 20 more, uh, 20 more uh, feet of miles of wall. 
21 miles of wall. Democrats are really doing what we all knew. They are concluding that the walls work and the border's being blitzed. As yet another Democratic mayor heads to the border to see for himself. And New York's mayor is actually in South and Central America trying to stop the tide. What a pathetic reflection that is on the federal government. Number one. They made up a fake case. They're fraudulent people. And the judge already knows what he's going to do. He's a Democrat judge. In all fairness to him, he has no choice. He's run by the Democrats. All fairness to him. I I forget it. This guy's doing what he wants to do, but it's gone too far. Even Trump critics agree that to get Trump, the get Trump movement is out of control. Now, it seems the FBI is even targeting Trump supporters, according to Newsweek. The effect? He is lapping the GOP field and beating Joe Biden in another battleground state, the latest being Pennsylvania, as they try to bankrupt him in the fall and jail him in the spring. No joke. Mark Thiessen here. You know everything Mark does. Mark, welcome back. Good to be with you. All right, let's talk about first off Joe Biden. His uh, Mayorkas says we're going to build another 20 miles of wall, and we're going to do in the Rio Grande Valley. They really need it. Really? Walls suddenly work? Well, they always supported walls until Trump came along. Yeah. I mean, this, was, this wasn't an issue of bipartisan disagreement beforehand. You could, I mean, you, you, Chuck Schumer was on record saying supporting border barriers. So it was only because th- this is the problem with the, with the left is that literally if Trump was for it, they were against it no matter what. And so, you know, it's not surprising now that, the, the, that they realize because the border is absolutely out of control. It's a disaster. It's a, you know, three years in a row of record high encounters. Uh, the you know, People on the terrorism watch list coming across the border, 1.5 million gotaways, uh, you know, 100,000 people a year dying from, from fentanyl that's coming across the border, which is the equivalent of a plane crashing every single day in America. Uh, of course, it's a disaster. And then now, the, thanks to the genius of, uh, of Greg Abbott and some of these uh, border state governors of shipping people up to New York, now you got Kathy Hochul. Uh, on on Face the Nation this weekend, saying Biden has to get the border under control. We got to stop letting everybody in. <laughs> yeah, but I blame Republicans for not doing comprehensive reform. Yeah, right. Sixty two percent disapprove of the president's immigration policy. Really, no idea. Here is a look back at Barack Obama and Chuck Schumer in two thousand six. Bill before us will certainly do some good. It will authorize some badly needed funding for better fences and better security along our borders. And that should help stem some of the tide of illegal immigration in this country. Construction of a 630-mile border fence that create a significant barrier to illegal immigration on our southern land border. Illegal immigration is wrong, plain and simple. It used to be so easy to work in Washington, right? Right and wrong used to be obvious. (laughs) It, it, it's well, it's still obvious to some of us, <laughs> but, you know, but here's the, this is what what people are don't understand is that Joe Biden hasn't just reversed Donald Trump's border policies. He's reversed Barack Obama's border policies. I mean, Barack Obama, let's not forget, Barack Obama was decried by the left as being the deporter in chief because he deported a record three million illegal migrants. From from this country, ICE, deten- ICE deportations under Biden have have trickled down to almost nothing. Uh, he, he, Obama had record levels of prosecutions for illegal entry and illegal re-entry into the United States. Those prosecutions have stopped under, uh, practically stopped under uh, under Biden. So it's not just it, it, they, they when they say that Congress needs to act. The same laws are on the books right now. The same authorities are on the books right now that were under the on the books for Trump and Obama. 
when they secured the border. So this is a crisis of choice. This is a situation where the president of the United States is choosing not to use the laws and authorities that are currently on the books that both his Republican and Democratic predecessors used to secure the border. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a crisis of choice, plain and simple. Yeah. The attorney general is in Mexico today. Uh, We have the secretary of state in Mexico City. We have Mayor Adams. Here he is. Uh, Why he is going to get the message to Mexico City. He's going to be going to uh, Ecuador and he's going to the Darien Pass in Panama. Listen to him. Cut 10. There's a body of people who are there that are giving them false hopes and false promises. We want to give people a true picture of what is here. A lot of people think buses are the only way, but they're coming in other means, through airports, through people driving in. And so we want to give an honest assessment of what we are experiencing here in this city. We are at at capacity, uh, over 117,000. He's got to do it himself. Now, he better listen because they will tell him that they can't control the people because they believe this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to change their lifetime and come to America. He's got to do some listening. But it just show the desperation he must feel to buck his own party like this. Well, I'd like to see him, instead of going there, I'd like to see him go to the White House and talk to, talk to and make the case to the, to the president. Remember, Hochul he couldn't made- get the meeting with the president. But, I mean, you know, what's the point of being a Democrat if you can't get a meeting with the Democratic president to talk about these problems? I mean, you know, then at some point you got to speak out publicly and say, you know, my president won't listen to me. He's screwing up. He's like, you know, have some courage. Step out and call him out on it. Well, I'll give, and, I'll, I'll give him this. When he comes back, I think that he can't help but be sobered up and understand what is happening, that the people are dying getting here. These are the survivors of the one that ends up in New York City. But the people that are being killed and raped or disappearing – uh, that's another story that I think he'll understand. Yeah, so all, uh, over 2,000 migrants have died tra- crossing the border um, in in the last three years under Joe Biden. 2,000 people. And that's not counting all the people who died on the way. That's actually crossing the border, like died, like drowning in the Rio Grande or getting killed in the process of crossing the border. So, you know, yeah, this is a, this is a humanitarian catastrophe. And the reason they're coming is because they know they get to stay. Yeah, and they get three meals. They get their laundry done. If you did, if you if we had Barack Obama in office right now, deporting three million migrants, uh, illegal migrants, back to where they came from, the the flow would slow down dramatically. So let's let's look at Pesos. What do you think is really happening? I know what we know is happening. We we see the flood. We see the record numbers. We know it's going to get worse. We know the border patrol is overwhelmed. But so does so does Joe Biden know this. So why do you think we have the secretary of state, uh, the attorney general? Why do you think we got the Democratic governors? Why do you think uh, the Pritzker, uh, Hochul, uh, Massachusetts all speaking out to one mayor, Brandon Johnson, going to the border today? They know this is political peril. Or is there something they're seeing in the numbers look so ominous that they have no choice in their internals? I, th- I think they probably do see the numbers in their internals. I think immigration is going to be a big issue in, in New York. The, the big problem they face, of course, is that everybody who is the most of the people who are concerned about this is left for Florida and other states. So you're never going to get a Republican elected in New York, unfortunately, because all the people who just had, had enough of it are leaving. Um, but, yeah, they're concerned uh, and they should be concerned and Biden should be concerned because this could cost him reelection. Uh, you know, and it's also, by the way, it's also undermining his policies in other areas. I mean, you and I 
are you know despondent over the uh, over the uh, over the reduction in support for Ukraine and amongst Republicans in Congress. I mean, the, what what is the refrain you keep hearing from the anti-Ukraine Republicans? Biden cares more about Ukraine's borders than our borders. Yep. And I look at that and I say they're not wrong. They're not. <laughs> you know, you and, and of course we're a superpower. We can secure our own border. And also help Ukraine uh, push back the Russians uh, who have unlawfully invaded them for all the reasons that we've discussed here. But when Biden refuses to do the former, then it's hard to convince conservatives to support the latter. And so he's actually undermining – he's killing Ukraine with his border crisis. He's absolutely killing Ukraine. He wants to get immigration reform done of some kind of – never going to happen. Uh, we need to, our immigration system is broken beyond Biden's incompetence. We got to fix our immigration system. You can never. It's got to be done in a bipartisan way. You're never going to get bipartisan support for immigration reform when this border, uh, when the border is insecure. So this is, there's downstream consequences to his his mismanagement of this border that you know cross the Atlantic and for, and affect our national security. It's hurting through Ukraine. It's hurting Taiwan. It's hurting. It's hurting lots of uh, U.S. allies around the world. So let's talk about the speaker, the the embarrassment of the century, 147 years, haven't had this happen. But now after 269 days, Speaker McCarthy is out. Jim Jordan made it clear he wants to be speaker. Cut 14. You need someone who can unite the conference and I think just as importantly, unite the conservative and Republican movement across this country. Uh, That's what I think I can do. That's why I'm running for the job. I like the job I had. Uh, Chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Chairman of the Select Committee on the Weaponization of Government, doing the work there. But I do think we have to have someone who can bring our team together. I think I'm best equipped to do that. The eight people who voted in a way that I I disagreed with, we got to bring them into the fold. I think I'm best equipped to do that so that we can then go do the things we told the American people we would do for them. So you sold? I mean, look, I, 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 Jim Jordan's a good guy. So is Steve Scalise, they've got a, they've got, you know, they've got good candidates out there, but you know, I got to tell you these, these, these eight knuckleheads, uh, you know, you got, you just had Matt uh, Rosendale came out that he said he was praying for a small majority. Yes. He was praying for a small majority. God always he answers those small majority prayers. Republicans who were running for election because he goes, because he knew that if there was a big majority, if we had a red wave, and this is the same thing for Matt Gates too, all of these idiots, they, they, if we had actually had a red wave, no one would care a whit about what they had to say. The, they, they, these are the this is the wing of the Republican Party that cost us the Senate, that cost us a stronger majority in the House, and as a result of their incompetence, because they put, they keep putting these extremists into races, they they that they, they can't get elected. And so we left winnable races on, on the floor, lost our chance to have the majority in both houses, strong majority, killed the red wave. As a result, they're more powerful now. And, and so they're ironically because the, the people who cost us the midterms are the ones who are empowered now, and they've got a gun to hell to, to, the, to the rest of the Republican caucus. And, they, and these people are traitors because they partnered with, with Nancy Pelosi and with AOC and with Ilhan Omar – and all these these people to knock out a Republican speaker, and they should. They, they, I, I I I pray that we win a stronger majority, and this doesn't hurt us, so that we can make these people as irrelevant as they ought to be. Well, the part of that guy here's Matt Rosendale and his genius. He wants to be the next senator from Montana. Cut eighteen over my dead body. The most important characteristic to me is to have someone who is trustworthy. That I know when they make commitments to the conference. Uh, as far as what we are working on, when they leave that room and they meet with Hakeem Jeffries, Chuck Schumer, or Joe Biden, 
that they stand by those commitments to the conference. And then I also want to make sure that we have someone that has an actual vision where they want to help the Republican Party to go, and, and they have the ability to incite some enthusiasm to bring the rest of the party along with them. And, and so I'm going to make sure that, that we get both. All right, there you go. Uh, I can't listen to him anymore. I so, can't either. And, and by the way, so Ken McCarthy lied to him, evidently. Yeah. You know what? These people need to go back and listen to Schoolhouse Rock, okay? <laughs> because they understand is that I'm just a bill. You know, you know that how this how a bill gets made. You have to control. It has to pass the Senate, and it has to pass and get signed into law by the president. And when you have a four seat majority in the House, you don't get to dictate everything you want. And if you want to get anything done, you have to compromise. And if you want to cut, look, I'm as as outraged about the five trillion dollars in spending that the Democrats ram through as any conservative is. You know how you how they did that. They went out and won elections, <laughs> and they got an, and they got a strong enough majority. They won the White House, they won the House, they won the Senate, right. and they passed their spending. If you want to repeal their spending, you have to go and win the House. He says, "With thirty-three trillion dollar in debt, we got ability to do that." Yeah, but with thirty-three trillion in debt. Yeah, and Speaker uh, and it's Speaker, uh, whatever Speaker McCarthy had brought it up. Lastly, President Trump is being totally screwed in New York City. I think people are seeing it. They're going after what he says, inflated, inflated properties that he has inflated, hurt nobody. There is nobody that got hurt. There's nobody that says he didn't pay his taxes. There's nobody that say he didn't pay his bills. There's no one say he didn't pay his it's insurance. So you're it's so severe and ridiculous. Ruth Marcus writes in The Washington Post, essentially, you can go after Trump, but you're overdoing it. And I'm just paraphrasing it. And that is a that is a not a conservative columnist in the, in the paper you write for. Yeah, I think well, so many people who would just say, well, I'm done with Trump and I might have been uh, thinking about voting for him, voting for him in the past are now going to his column just because they're seeing Jack Smith, see him hold a gun with his with his faint with his picture on it and saying, oh, I want him sanctioned. I want a gag order. The judge wants a gag order. They're seeing the way he's treated and it's helping him. Your thought? 30 seconds. Ninety one indictments. The Unabomber had only 13 indictments. I mean, ninety one indictments. Federal court, state court, civil court. I mean, these people, it's just the left always goes too far. And here's the thing. They want Trump to be the nominee because they think he's easier to beat. But they are by their by their conduct and by their overreach. They're actually they they need to remember 2016. (laughs) They thought that they thought there was no chance he was going to get elected in 2016. They're they they are, you know, and they did this in the midterms. They did this where they where they where they ran. Right. Uh, they helped mega candidates get elected in House and Senate races because they know that'd be easier to beat, and it worked. It might backfire on them in tw- in, tw- uh, in 2024, and we well, could get another Trump president. Every time we talk, I think it got closer to reality. Mark Thiessen, we never have enough time. Thanks so much. Take care. All right, calls next. Brian Kilmeade. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, well, welcome back, everybody. Just uh, a lot going on this hour with Mark Thiessen, too. He's as conservative as it gets, and he just can't believe the anarchy that took place this week after the deal was cut Sunday, after the anarchy on Saturday, and then the fallout. 
and that's taken place. And the reason why he's caught off guard is because it never happened before in a lifetime. So you're talking 147 years, nothing like this has happened. And now the scramble to get a speaker, we didn't really go heavily into, but people are so angry. Uh, people are so angry right now uh, on the Republican side that they might drag this out. And who knows? They might even try to find a pathway to get McCarthy back in there. I don't think so, just by judging by the, the craziness of the people that got him kicked out. I mean, I've talked to uh, Congressman Good is not budging. Uh, Gates is not budging. This is his whole identity. And then you have this congressman from Tennessee who uh, is not budging. So uh, Nancy Mace, I don't even know why she was involved with a group of people that don't believe anything that she believes. The only thing they know have in common is they're both from the same party. All right, when we come back, uh, more from my interview with Thomas Sowell. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Remember, you can get Teddy and Booker T. Uh, pre-order uh, November 7th. It comes out. These two American icons, how they blazed a path to social uh, equality. And we're still blazing that path today. Don't move. This three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. It's my privilege to bring you more of my interview with Thomas Sowell. Uh, he's the author of Social Justice Fallacies. One of the fallacies is that the great society was going to take off under Lyndon Baines Johnson, who's going to make everything equal and make it better for minorities, especially African Americans. Uh, there would need to be reform in the 1960s, but the results were anything but great. So Senator Tim Scott brought that up, and people thought that said some horrible things about him for saying it, but he lived it. We begin the interview with Thomas Sowell with a soundbite from Senator Tim Scott. Black families survived slavery. We survived poll taxes and literacy tests. We survived discrimination. What was hard to survive was Johnson's Great Society, where they decided to put money, where they decided to take the black father out of the household to get a check in the mail. And you can now measure that in unemployment, in crime, in devastation. So people, Democrats, got offended that he took on the Great Society. Where do you stand, Thomas Sowell? Uh, every word he said uh, yeah, was absolutely correct. Uh, like they, the Democrats should, uh, should stop being offended and start, start facing facts. On the other hand, the Republicans are not always facing facts either. So in the Great Society might have been well-intended, but the result was the essential incentivization of of uh, of getting welfare checks, and if you have at one point uh, a single parent family, you'd get more money. Oh, absolutely, and, and, the, and the data in, in my book shows that you know uh, uh, black married couple families uh, have had poverty rates under ten percent for more than a quarter of us every year for more than a quarter of a century, starting in nineteen ninety four, and so. Uh, the, Differences between races are not necessarily racial differences, either in the sense of genetics or in the sense of uh, discrimination, that where there are behavioral differences from different cultures, which there always are, uh, those who have a certain behavior pattern uh, do not do not have the same consequences. By contrast, uh, white female headed families uh, have had much higher poverty rates than black married couple families. It's, it's not. It's not the race as such. It's the it's the behavior patterns. 
And you think one of the great things that happened to you is you did have a two-parent family. You had you had you were adopted. Uh, you're living yeah. in New York City, and and you asked you asked uh, uh, your family, you know, when did I start walking? He goes, we don't know because your feet never hit the floor. You were being held so much, and that that yeah, really was, laid the foundation to be this great person you ended up becoming. Well, well, I I, I know that it was it was really more like a four-parent family in the sense that that I was the only uh, uh, child in a family of four adults, and so, so I had I had a. A lot of people there to 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 uh, and in the in the early years, especially when so every, everything is so crucial. And uh, Thomas, also, you bring up the fact that you know there's there's reasons why certain people are successful. For example, the oldest child in a family is tends to be more successful because at, at a time they were the only child. And you said there's no coincidence. It's not a coincidence that most astronauts were were the oldest in their family. How does that figure well, into what you become? Oh, well, question about it because they they saw things even though they had little, little education they were thinking ahead about my future and of course when I was a kid I wasn't thinking about the future to me the future was two weeks from now uh, but, but they, they met some kid who was a very bright and a very intellectually oriented uh, and they immediately the, the light bulb went on that 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 that, that, that he should uh, sort of take me in, in in hand. He's a year older than me, and and it was through him that I went went into a, a public library for the first time, having no idea what a public library was. <laughs> Little things can change lives. As you look at as you look at your life now, and look at what we've experienced as a country. Uh, you remember the segregated South. That's not stranger to you. You don't have to read that in the book. You lived it. But as we look now, we seem to be more racially aware now than ever before. But in, in essence, is America more equal than it ever was? Oh, no. I know. Uh, the, the, the painful irony is that as, the, as rates of intermarriage uh, have risen to levels far beyond what they were in the past, has. Everybody is now more uh, intensely into uh, a racial identity. And that's not peculiar to the United States. The same thing you see it in, in uh, New Zealand, where the Maoris are constantly talking talk about their identity. I don't know if, if there are any, how many pure-blooded Maoris there are in New Zealand as compared to those who are Maori and white. And, 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 and what are you, you going to do if you're going to have reparations, for example? How are you going to unscramble all these people? When an absolute majority of black Americans have Caucasian genes. So do you look at America? I mean, if would you see progress in, in race relations today? I see progress where people have been left alone to work things out uh, themselves. I see a lot of retrogression where there are pre- presumptuous people among intellectuals and among uh, opportunistic politicians who, have, who are playing up. Uh, ra- racial differences in order to win votes. And today, when you saw the George Floyd riots and the rise of uh, Black Lives Matter, and then you mentioned reparations, especially in the West Coast, the brainchild of your genius governor, uh, the, are those things, do you think, prog- show progress? Do they disturbing to you? No. No, no, my gosh. It, it makes me wonder if we're not buying problems much bigger than any human being can solve. Uh, the George Floyd riots were especially painful to me uh, because when you think about it, what, what, were the, what, what, what were the people protesting? They say, well, they protested what the, what the policemen did. It was an evil thing that the policemen did. 
everybody I know. One of the, one of the most conservative uh, uh, radio uh, broadcasters uh, uh, went ballistic denouncing the policeman. I can't think of any incident in, uh, in American history where there was more, more uh, at the very least, 99 percent agreement. The cops shouldn't have done it. He should have be fired. He should be indicted. He should be tried, convicted, uh, and sentenced. All of that happened. So what was the, you know, if, if you're going to riot when there's unanimity, good heaven, what are you going to do when there are differences of opinion? So that was uh, Thomas Sowell speaking out about things that he's been researching his entire life. Name of the book, Social Justice Fallacies. And if you want to arm yourself uh, with the next uh, great statement on your, whether it's your bar pro, uh, backyard barbecue or a tailgate uh, with facts about America, do that. When we come back, Booker T. Washington his message in the early 20th century and how some are running from it today, and they shouldn't. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. So I'm talking more with Thomas Sowell. In this, in this portion of our interview off his book, Social Justice Fallacies, uh, one of the most respected deep thinkers in America today. We talk about Booker T. Washington, who really is defined. And don't be mad at yourself if you don't know. We didn't learn a lot about it in school. But in my book, Teddy and Booker T., I went heavily into it. First time I got the book was up from slavery. It talks about what he did for education and what charter schools are doing today. Let's listen to Thomas Sowell talk about education in America. Just looking back at race relations, uh, I wrote The President Freedom Fighter. You studied Frederick Douglass and where he came from slavery, how he, how the meager means in which Abraham Lincoln came back from, and then picking up yeah. where he left off, Booker T. Washington, who overlapped with Frederick Douglass, was able to put together educational institutions in the segregated South. Yet today, Booker T. Washington is not necessarily embraced by the black community. Do you understand why? Oh, he, 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 his, pro, his program was different from theirs. That he, he was trying to make sure that the blacks acquired skills at Tuskegee Institute, which, which he founded. And, he, and, and one of the skills they uh, taught was building skills. And so many of those uh, buildings were built by the students themselves on the basis of what they, were, what, what they had been taught. And, and they were making their own bricks. And, there, and even in the, in, the, in, the, in the segregated South, whites would come over to Tuskegee Institute to buy, to buy bricks because they could get a better deal there. And then in the end, it was all about getting at getting your, uh, you know, raising intellects and academics, but also learning a trade. Because at that time, the white community wasn't looking necessarily to hire blacks. So make yourself invaluable for yourself, for others, start your own business. Yes, there was segregated South and there was racism. Overcome it was his attitude. Does Thomas Sowell have that same attitude? Yes, I think I, I think that we give so much uh, attention to racists. Uh, when I look at groups around the world, and I spent a lot of time studying that over the years, uh, the groups that rise from poverty to prosperity almost never have any charismatic leaders who lead them protesting to other against other groups, no matter how how justified the protesting would be. They put their they invest their time and energies uh, into acquiring skills that have value in the marketplace, and that's how they arose. In the United States, for example, there was a time. Uh, 
about 100 years or so ago when the people of Japanese and Chinese immigrants were, could not legally own property in California. Uh, they didn't spend their time worrying about that. They, they, they got, built up their, their own uh, skills and, and went on. Uh, but but now I don't believe racists today can do half as much damage to to, to the younger generation of blacks uh, as the teachers unions are doing every day. <laughs> and because the way they the low expectations, the lack of quality care, it's not a lack of money, lack of funding. You see this staggering uh, results on academic standards when it comes to the cities. Most of them run by uh, African-American mayors, uh, run by school. To, you know, most of them are filled with minority students. But it's not because minorities aren't capable of everything uh, others are capable of. It's all about the, the situation which they're born into and the classroom as well as the curriculum. Yeah, well, I, I did a book on, on charter schools a few years ago in which I compared schools in New York City where the black and Hispanic kids uh, were, were in, 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 in charter schools were located in the very same building with uh, black and Hispanic kids uh, from traditional public schools. In fact, I, I myself went to one of those schools when I was a teenager. Uh, and, and those schools... The ones, the black and Hispanic kids who are in the traditional public schools uh, reach, the, reach the required level of math uh, 7% of the time. In the uh, charter school, in the very same building, serving the very same community, 100% of the students met the, met the standards. Now, <laughs> you know, you can't explain that by race. You can't explain <laughs> it by race. And you can't explain it by, by test by, by bias. So, and the thing is, uh, uh, Dr. Soule, for the most part, teachers in the public school are even getting paid more, and their, and their days are shorter. So you can't say, well, you, you get what you pay for. Not really. If you look at what, these, what they're producing in these charter schools, you're getting a longer day, more demands, usually a uniform, and you seem to, and the demands result in better results. Worse than that. People don't understand that charter schools were set up with the idea that you would have an experimental kind of school, and if some things worked there, you could transfer that to the, the regular, larger regular public schools. Fine. What happened is that the charter schools have so outperformed the uh, traditional public schools that the traditional public schools know they're never going to be able to do what the charter schools are doing. And so there are laws, including in California that are forcing the the charter schools to do the counterproductive things that the public schools are doing in order to save the the, uh, jobs of the unionized teachers and in order to continue for the unions uh, to take in billions of dollars in union dues every every year. And you would think, okay, well, I love what that charter school is doing. Let's learn from that. Instead, they look at him as the enemy. And I don't know if you're involved, but I watch what's happening on in New York all the time. And they're trying to keep down the charter schools. It was supposed to be uh, dozens more, but they're just leaving them empty. And they're not, uh, they're not staffing them up and, and putting kids in there because it would hurt the amount of people in the public schools. 
But if you really cared about minorities like you claim to, you'd want to fill up those charter schools because you want the results. Better educated, highly motivated students. Yeah, the, the, the last time I checked, there were 50,000 students in New York City on uh, uh, trying try to get into charter schools and not able to do so. In California, it's even worse. In 2019, a law was passed saying that disruptive students cannot be expelled from, from charter schools. Now, if the, you know, in other words, the charter schools had, had, had behavioral standards. Uh, and so instead of uh, raising the behavioral standards in the public schools, uh, they'd ra- they would rather deliberately handicap the charter school. It is quite cynical. I just like to go back in history. By the way, we're talking to Thomas Sowell's new book that you need to read is Social Justice Fallacies. He goes out and gets the facts about institutions and the families uh, and um, uh, and races and lets everybody know that we aren't necessarily in a we're not in a um, uh, a racist society. There are societal reasons why certain things happen. And one of the things we could all do is you could, if you want to raise somebody, you raise them in a stable family. That's probably the best thing you could do if you want your kid to be successful. But just looking back in history, it's just amazing how the smartest people, if you look back in time, had opinions because that's how they were brought up. I know Benjamin Franklin was, uh, was brought up and he was a guy who had slaves. And he just thought, well, whites are smarter than blacks, and that's just the way it is. And then later on, he would find out and see uh, black kids in school and see the results and start noticing there is no difference. He became the uh, the ultimate abolitionist in his lifetime. And then other people like Booker T. Washington would notice that people were brought up in environments where they were always told from the time they were kids that uh, whites were, were smarter than blacks or blacks weren't smart. And that would gradually change with time. And then you see people like Andrew Carnegie and the rich and famous who stand up and and speak out and support people like Booker T. Washington and and do the best they can white, to, to help the African-American cause because things change. People are born with perceptions, and they're wrong. But it doesn't mean they're necessarily evil. It means they need to be better educated and exposed to the realities, which your book does with the fall- uh, exposing the fallacies. But if you look back in time and you say, well, Benjamin Franklin had slaves, we got to hate him. Or George Washington had slaves, we got to hate him. I think that's a very dangerous thing to do, don't you? Yes. What our, what our schools are doing is teaching kids to hate strangers who have done nothing to them. Now, that is not, 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 a, that's not a good future either for that kid, those kids or for this whole society. Because once, once you start tolerating that, from one side, you'll you'll start seeing the same thing happening on the other side, and and at that point there'll be such outrage that the actual substantive issues won't matter anymore. There'll there'll be people out for revenge and counter revenge on and on. So hope you enjoyed that interview with Thomas Sowell, and you can learn a lot, and you really can all day. Also, special thanks to Mark Thiessen for this hour for rounding it out. And just giving us a different perspective about what's going on in America. I read that we have not had positive visions as a country of our own country since back in 2004. 2004. It's time to look back and understand where we are and not panic about some of the derision and division today. Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. 
Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, we have a lot to discuss today. Amazing some reversals, too. It's amazing how the President of the United States seems to be coming, coming uh, more and more towards uh, Donald Trump's policies. Now the latest is at the border. Uh, we're going to discuss that with uh, Jonathan Turley. Uh, and we also have a great guest coming our way. It is uh, Chef Marcella Valladoli, and she's going to be with us, author of Familia, uh, an Emmy-nominated celebrity chef, a former Food Network host, and we'll talk to her, and then we'll take your calls, too. But right now, let's get to the big three. Now, with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. You need someone who can unite the conference and I think just as importantly unite the conservative and Republican movement across this country. Uh, that's what I think I can do. That's why I'm running for the job. Wow, the speaker search begins in earnest. The folly of the McCarthy ouster and the contenders who want his job. Number two. No, I'm, there will not be another foot of wall constructed on my administration. Um, oh. I'm going to make sure that we have border protection, but it's going to be based on making sure that we use high-tech capacity to deal with it. Exactly. Except for now, Joe, you're building the wall. That was then, and now we're living in the real world. That's not Trump talking. Try Mayorkas. Democrats are really doing what we all knew. Walls work and the border is being blitzed. And yet another Dem mayor heads down south to see for themselves how bad it is. Number one. They made up a fake case. They're fraudulent people. And the judge already knows what he's going to do. He's a Democrat judge. In all fairness to him, he has no choice. He's run by the Democrats. Gone too far. Even Trump critics agree they get Trump movement is out of control. Now it seems the FBI is even targeting Trump supporters. The effect he is lapping the GOP field and beating Joe Biden in another battleground state. They're trying to bankrupt him in the fall and jail him in the spring. Will that work? Hey, Jonathan. Well, Jonathan Turley of George Washington University. Welcome back. Thank you, Jonathan. I, the civil trial has me so confused. I mean, just without that law background that you have in teach. I'm seeing a judge say before the whole thing starts, he committed fraud. He owes roughly $250 million. We're probably going to take his business certificates. Now let a three-month trial begin. What's the point of this? Yeah, there's a reasonable question in many people's mind as to the level of effort being uh, taken here. You know, in real estate, it is a common problem of over-evaluation and under-evaluation of property. It's a common practice. Uh, I think that there was over and under evaluation here as well. But the question is, what's the response to that? And the response here is a virtual nuclear option uh, where uh, they're going at this for this massive trial. And the question, again, is why? I mean, the the Trump team does have a, a valid point. It does not appear to be any victim in the sense of banks losing money. Their argument is that banks made millions of dollars off this. But this is really the product of a New York law, which is different from most laws. You know, it does not require that you intended to defraud. It doesn't require that anyone lost money, that there's any sort of conventional victim. And on that basis, James is allowed under this law to seek massive disgorgement of profits, uh, even though uh, that was not taken essentially from any victim. And, you know, a lot of people are asking themselves, well, why? You know, this is a this is a practice that has long been objected to, even if you find over and under valuation, which I think there's evidence of that. You know, why isn't this just a matter of a settlement? 
uh, James wants to run him out of New York. And we've seen that. While denying it. Yeah, and we, we saw it in the past. I criticized her about her selective prosecution. It's not just running on the promise to bag Trump for something. But she's been very selective. She sought to uh, um, get rid of the National Rifle Association, the largest Second Amendment organization in the country. She wanted it to be uh, taken down by the court uh, because they had uh, these spending issues and and, and fraud allegations. And yet, as I mentioned in that piece, other liberal organizations – that have had the same type of allegations. James has no interest in, you know, Black Lives Matter has been subject to fraud allegations in various states. Huge amounts of money uh, have disappeared. She's not trying to disband Black Lives Matter. Nope. She's not even pursuing it. Uh, the same is true with Al Sharpton's organization. There's been years of allegations that Sharpton was effectively pilfering off that organization. She doesn't have any interest in that, and that's called selective prosecution. So you can accept that there was over and under evalu- uh, evaluations here. That's, I think that that is going to be borne out. But the question is, how different is that from other organizations, and why this nuclear option for the Trump organization? Absolutely. So uh, I'm just telling you right now, uh, among the people with the perception that we have, I think it's most Everybody. There's so many Trump haters out there. It's so interesting to see them look at this case and not and try to pretend it's no politics. Ruth Marcus doesn't even think about pretending. As she wrote yesterday, the rule of law means not allowing Trump to evade responsibility, criminal or civil, for his behavior. But it also entails not treating Trump more harshly than anyone else in similar circumstances. And I worry that that is happening here. Being forced to sell, forcing the sale of or other disposition of his businesses, as the judge ordered in his opinion last week, seems both unnecessary and unduly punitive. He goes on and disproportionate. I mean, this is unbelievable. And I think a lot of people who don't have the even ambition to own a building or a golf course or a city like he does look at this and say, if they could do this to him and seemingly get away with it. We're doomed. Well, I also think that it is astonishing that many people in New York, particularly lawyers, really haven't objected to how James has proceeded. Once again, you can, you know, Trump has has always been known to over and under value uh, property, uh, and I think he picked up that habit in the New York real estate market, where that's common. Doesn't make it right. But people are silent about watching a person run for the attorney general's position, pledging to bag an individual on anything. I mean, it's very different from saying, you know what, Trump shot someone on Fifth Avenue and we're not going to let that happen. Okay, that's a crime that you're saying wasn't prosecuted. She was saying, I'm going to get Trump. I'm going to get him on something. Wait a second. I have, she says she denies that. So listen to her. Listen to her past comments. Everyone at home. Jonathan Charlie is not just thinking that. It's not that he has a source. He has a television. Listen. The president of the United States has complained that I'm engaging in some sort of political witch hunt, that I've got some personal vendetta against him, that I campaigned against him. That is not true. This illegitimate president who sits in the White House. That president, because he's not my president, he's an illegitimate president. Ready to mobilize 
I don't know. Do you think she's, there's a lot of nuance there? No. And, you know, it was very – a number of us were really taken aback by her comments during the campaign. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written that that column because it was really so far off the pale. And if you had had a Republican prosecutor saying, if you, if you elect me, I'm going to go after Trump or go after you know, Hillary Clinton – I, then there would be the similar objections. After him for what? And we've seen also with Alvin Bragg, you know, he brought this case, which is the weakest of all these cases. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I, and he did that out of political pressure. And yet every one of these good, you know, legal order type of advocates in the media and in the bar are silent, you know, because you know, their their views change on who the defendant is. And that's not how principle works. Principle works if you say things that, you know, you don't want to say, but you have to say. So Newsweek has a story today that Donald Trump followers are being targeted by the FBI leading up to the 2024 election. Uh, this is, a, according to an FBI agent, the federal government believes the threat of violence and civil disturbance around the 24 election is great, that it was quietly creating a new category of extremists that it seeks to track and counter Donald Trump's army of MAGA followers. The challenge for the FBI, the primary federal agency charged with enforcement, is to pursue and prevent what it calls domestic terrorism without direct reference to political parties or affiliations. So this is what's in Newsweek now, the FBI looking at MAGA followers as terrorists. You okay with that? No. In fact, I testified on this uh, many months ago because the Democrats were pushing legislation that would have made ideology a focus of targeting by the FBI. And I testified and said, don't do this. You know, you can actually investigate lots of violent groups that are based on any one of criteria, but don't try to prioritize ideology because that's what has happened in the darkest periods of our history. And it seems like the FBI has sort of quietly done that anyway. That legislation did not pass. The Democrats weren't able to get it through. And it's a very dangerous thing. You know, the many of us were very critical of what happened on January 6th. Most of us believe that people should be punished uh, if they engaged in the riot. But hundreds of people were charged. And often those people were charged with relatively minor offenses of trespass or uh, unlawful entry. And yet they were held for a very long time, and they were also given very, very harsh uh, punishments. And it, it seemed to fit what this lead FBI agent said, which is they wanted to do shock and awe. They wanted to put everyone back on their heels. And some of us objected to that and said, you know, that's not a healthy thing yeah. for a legal system uh, to do shock and awe as the FBI. Why don't you just focus on prosecuting cases and treating them equally? So this uh, Newsweek story, there was a, this one reporter has said another quote. Another senior intelligence official requested anonymity told Newsweek, quote, we crossed the Rubicon, Trump's army constituents, the greatest threat of violence domestically, politically, and the, and the reality and the problem set. That's what the FBI as a law enforcement agency has to deal with. But whether Trump and his supporters are a threat to national security to the country, whether they represent a threat to civil war, that's a trickier question. And that's for the country to deal with, not the FBI. 
So yeah, and it's a little it's a little bit convoluted because you're also saying that they're a threat you're targeting those individuals. Uh, so I, I like the last part, you know, because there's a lot of rhetoric that goes into all of this. But the question is, is the FBI using ideology as a threshold criteria? That's dangerous. That's what happened to the left during the McCarthy period. They were targeted because of their ideology. And yet some want them to pick up the same cudgel and use it against the right. It's crazy. And the thing is, there is not a history of violence outside January 6th with Trump supporters. In fact, they're usually the victims. We watched them get beat up a few days before. No one remembers that during a protest. Most of the time they were getting uh, knocked around. So that's why Eric and others were on text messages saying, Eric Trump, these are not our people. You know our people aren't like that. And it's amazing the FBI hasn't realized that unless they're that politicized. Uh, Lastly, uh, Jonathan, your experience last week in the beginning and the beginning of the uh, in the beginning of the impeachment inquiry, your thoughts about them bouncing off you and the attacks you took? <laughs> well, unfortunately, uh, it was expected. You know, I've testified over 100 times in Congress, and there has been a change. There was a time when you could go and talk about constitutional history and theory, have disagreements, but it wasn't personal. There weren't that problem of attacks. That's become the norm. And, in fact, in my testimony, I encourage them to think about this. You know, think about what they are teaching others. When people see members making these ridiculous attacks, you can't complain about the rage rhetoric in our country when you're fueling it. And that's what happened with this member from Pennsylvania. Uh, Although I have to tell you, I didn't expect that to be the attack. With my kids sitting there, he basically said I was a polygamous fellow traveler (laughs) and then lied. Uh, You know, he said that I represented a guy named Green and I supported him uh, in these waving around these articles. That's not true. The articles he's waving around, I condemned Green, never represented him. I was representing the sister wives. Uh, in first a criminal, then a civil action. Now I told, and, and but he wouldn't let me finish. He cut me off, and then he left the room. About thirty minutes later, someone was kind enough to say, "Would you like to respond?" Yeah. And I said, "Look, I'm a libertarian. I don't believe the government should tell consenting adults what they should do in their in their their bedrooms." But that was absolutely untrue. I condemned that individual and said that he should have been prosecuted. But it didn't matter. The member was long gone. He got his snippet on the air. And that's all they really care about. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I, I'm watching with the people talking to you. I'm just remarkable how you kept your control. Uh, but I, I, if people listen to what you had to say, they really understood what the impeachment inquiry was about and what it wasn't about. It's literally legitimately an investigation. That's what it's for. And it's to allow them for additional opportunities to get the people to comply with the subpoenas. Jonathan Turley, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. We come back. We'll take your calls. Brian Kilmeade Show. Then the bottom of the hour, uh, we do something totally different. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Early on in the pandemic, Philip said to me, 
you should do online cooking. And honestly, I was like, I'm too cool for that. Not because I'm too cool, but I was like, because my audience expects like a certain quality from what I put up there. For the last 10 years, I've done high-end productions with really big networks. I just don't want to do Zoom cooking classes. Like I don't want to compromise the quality of my work and my delivery. And then Selena Gomez invited me to be a guest on her show, Selena and Chef. And I was like, how are they gonna do that? Because every time we do a television shoot, it's usually like between 20 and 30 people here. They sent over just two people and we taped that show. And in the middle of it, I was like, Philip, ask all the questions. And we asked about sound, about cameras. We saw how they cooked up the cameras to the stove. like. I saw them do all of these things. And in my mind, I was like, well, if she can do this for a massive, gorgeous, beautiful, super production for HBO Max, I could definitely do cooking classes and give you guys a quality product. And uh, there you go. That is Chef Mar- Marcella Vidali, who's going to be coming up next. Got a brand new book out. And uh, she's going to come your way in a moment. Let's try to squeeze in some calls. Chris, listen on WDBO in Orlando. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brian. Earlier on, you had made mention about uh, Mrs. Mace and yes. why she was the one uh, female out of the eight. Not so much female. Was, uh, she was the one who totally disagrees with Matt Gates on everything, but not on that. Yeah, but, but specifically, the reason she said that she ousted McCarthy was because he made her a promise that the House would address women's um, health rights. And we know what this boils down to. It's, we have to come up with women's health rights and a choice to 15 weeks and then abortion thereafter. And it's not coalescing as Republicans. It's coalescing as legislation to help everyone, a compromise. I'm not sure 15 weeks. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying that I'm not sure a national legislation has any momentum. I think it's a conventional wisdom on the right. And just because he didn't do it in nine months doesn't mean he's not going to do it ever. So to me, I don't get it. I mean, she's she's sitting there with Steve Bannon, with Matt Gates, and she asked for Steve Bannon should be jailed, and he's being interviewed by her. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, a few minutes to do something a little different. We can put the speaker's race on hold for a second. I'm sure it'll be okay. Uh, Chef Marcella Valladolid joins us now, author of Familia, an Emmy-nominated celebrity chef, former Food Network host, now doing her own thing as a as a complete uh, entrepreneur. Uh, uh, Marcella, great to see you. Thank you for having me. And you got this brand-new book out. What prompted this to writing this? Uh, mid, actually not mid pandemic, closer to the beginning that pandemic, like a lot of planet earth, all of my projects just kind of ended productions ended partnerships were put on hold. It was a scary time. And, um, I decided to go online and teach cooking classes basically just to kind of keep myself busy and not go crazy at zoom. Um, with my sister Karina and it it blew up. We were getting 1300 students per class from around the world. It was pandemic. So we would get not just a person in a square zoom square, but we would get entire families and we would eat dinner together. The thousands of people and me and my sister. So it was like the most amazing thing. And that's how the book came to be. And you said that people would pay to get out, to get on. To yeah. Watch. That and was my they job. Got it, and they got a ticket. That was my job during pandemic. They got a very detailed document. Sometimes I would write up 10 pages um, detailing the recipes, where to buy the ingredients. I would give them links to the ingredients. I would explain the ingredients. Um, and they got the cooking class. And 
then they would get a recording of the class as well that they could keep and download and keep forever. Wow, and it just worked out better than you could have imagined. Uh, it became it became this really huge thing, and we I eventually was able to sell this great book proposal, and now it's a I can't believe it's like a book sitting in front of you right now. Do they did your recipes and the classes take into a, how did it take into account that people weren't there live? Uh, they were there live, but they weren't with you. Yes. Did you have to change how you did things? No, great question. I had to. I had to take advantage of the fact that uh, Zoom or that the um, gave me the capability of seeing all of my students. So I would literally be like, is this concept good with you? Can I move forward? Give me a thumbs up. And I would look at the squares. And if I had the majority of thumbs up, I could move forward. So it was really also a very interactive cooking class. We would open up the squares and ask questions like, how is it looking? Do you almost show me your food? And it would be like majority rules. If I saw that the Zoom squares all looked like I could move forward, I would move forward. So it was just really cool because it did feel very interactive. So Zoom was perfect for cooking. Yeah, for I mean, those because classes, Because you could yes. see them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We could see each other, and we could talk to each other, and there's a chat uh, option. So if, uh, you know, I would ignore the questions if it was something that was in the recipe and they ignored because they didn't pay attention. But if 10 people asked the same question, I knew to take a pause and address it. So it was really cool. And so that gave a prompt to this book. But in terms of the food you made, yes. what is your focus? Like, what, what makes you you? Yes, my food my food is homestyle Mexican food, but I would say a little more leaning towards, like, maybe California, a little fresher um, I don't want to say a little bit healthier because I don't purposely make it healthy. But if you stick to the traditional methods of Mexican food, it is actually a healthy cuisine. I think that's what people don't know about our cuisine. Right. And that's what people are looking for now because they're looking to survive. And they're also noticing what's in their food. Exactly. And and I talk about that on my social media a lot. And I say it can be, you know, being on social media these days can give you so much anxiety because all you hear about is everything that's wrong with our food system and the world and how um, our health and all these things, which are super important to talk about. But I say, if you're overwhelmed, just go to something like these recipes where it's just asking you to cook with ingredients from scratch, whole ingredients, you know, shop the perimeter of the supermarket, get fresh ingredients, stay away from things that come from a box. It's not that complicated. Traditional methods will always give you healthy food. So describe your life growing up. You were going back and forth from California to from Tijuana. Yeah, I didn't realize how special that was until I started doing TV and I was doing an interview with the Wall Street Journal and they were like, wait a second, you, wait a second, you live in Tijuana because back and I lived in Tijuana. And cross the border every day. And I'm like, yeah, I grew up living in Tijuana. My mother and father were Mexican, but my mother was American born. I am American born. So we would cross the border literally every single day to go to school in San Diego with like my Tupperware container with like breakfast, waiting in line to get across. Wow. Yeah. So I grew up speaking both languages, eating both foods, both cultures. Like literally, I'm the perfect example of right. half and half. Right. And so it was interesting. They tried, they, your parents wanted you to school here. Yes. Why is that? I think my for my mom, it was really important that we dominate both languages. She knew the import, how it would open, and she was absolutely right in my case, um, that it would open up a lot of, of doors for me to have. I already had citizenship because I was born here, so that papers were yeah. not an issue. Um, but spe for her, it was really important that we were perfectly fluent and understood both languages and cultures. So do you, have you noticed, I'm sure you have, how, how into Tex-Mex and everything that Americans are? Yeah, today, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in the beginning of my career, I was kind of angry about it. But the reality is um, Tex-Mex is just like it's a different category of cuisine. And now I've become so much more inclusive and inviting of every sort of cuisine and type of cooking. And the reality is Tex-Mex 
introduce the country to a lot of the ingredients that I do work with, a lot of the authentic ingredients that I work with. Was, so it's great. Was it a male-dominated business when you got into it? Um, here's the thing, and I get asked this question a lot. I never, I never felt that I was at a disadvantage as a Latina. I grew up in a very, very proud uh, matriarchal household where Mexican women ruled, like my mom was a CEO, like the women in yeah. my family had all of the power. Um, not to say that the men didn't, but they weren't traditional, perhaps submissive part of a patriarchal society, which is a lot of what we see on Mex- sitcoms. A hundred percent. So I, I grew up in that bubble where I was just extremely proud of being Mexican and being a woman that that became my superpower. So I never felt that I was at a disadvantage. For me, it was always looking at the landscape and seeing all the men and be like, they're all missing right. they're missing a Mexicana on there. <laughs> like, that was just my attitude about it. I never felt at a disadvantage. It, it, was, not, it was never a do not enter sign for you. Just, no, I yeah. never felt like a victim. I always felt like it was my superpower. So a couple of things. I guess the number one issue right now in America might be the border. Yes. And we have uh, mayor of New York. And going to Ecuador, Mexico City, going to Panama. We have our Secretary of State, our Attorney General in Mexico City today. Mm-hmm. We have the mayor of uh, the mayor of Chicago at the border today in Texas. Yes. How do you view all this, being someone for, who's so familiar with both countries? You know what? It's such a tough question to answer. And I was just having a conversation with um, with uh, Allison. Uh, with Allison this morning about it. And and the reality is. For those of us that live there, and I do a lot to to um, try and and make people aware of what what's happening, just in the sense that there are human lives involved, and how can I help? Just as a human helping another human, staying away from politics. But for someone that lives there, I think I don't want to say it's greatly exaggerated, but I definitely want to say there's a misunderstanding of how the those of us that live in the border, how we live and how we live, how we cross the border and how it impacts our lives. Um, I think there's a there's a misunderstanding of, of what truly happens down there. Well, but what about how you feel about it? is there a sense that Central and South America think this is one opportunity to get to those countries who would come one, come all? Do you worry about the families making it across? I absolutely worry. About, uh, I worry about the kids. I worry about the children. I worry about the children. And I'm I'm. I definitely believe there should be – listen, I've been there. I've actually been there uh, with humanitarian aid. And as a per, as a human just standing there, and it's – I'm not a politician. I make enchiladas for a living. But as a human standing there, you can literally see how the access is kind of, you know, open. You can literally see that that it's not the hardest thing in the world to just literally cro- walk across. And as someone standing there and seeing this happen, you're like, how is how can this not be resolved? Like, mm-hmm. what is going on here and why is this flow of people actually being permitted to come across the border? Like, it's all very confusing what's being reported. And for those of us that actually have been down there trying to care for the children and the pregnant woman uh, and the teenagers, like, it's all very sad and very confusing and then, when oh, you're there. And a lot of people are Mexican, right? They're mostly from other countries passing through Mexico. Yes, absolutely. And and actually, it's actually one of the things that makes Tijuana one of the most amazing places on earth is that a lot of people come to Tijuana thinking they're going to be able to cross the border and they don't. So we've become this like massive melting pot of cultures and cuisines and we have people from all over the world that live there and contribute to the food and the culture. And it's actually one of the most awesome places to be. And Jeff, how would you describe this book, the family recipes for people to sit down again and enjoy a family meal? Yeah, I talk about that a lot on my social media as well. I think we've lost a lot of those values. And I I saw it through pandemic, what it meant to 
to see families sitting together and eating together and what that does for us as a society, as a community to bring that back. You know, these these recipes are really easy to follow. I think it's the first cookbook ever where every recipe has been tested already by hundreds and thousands of people, which makes it pretty cool. And, and that's why the word foolproof is on the cover. They're easy to follow and they'll get the whole family to the table. So do you, that entrepreneurial aspect, how much more satisfying is it to found and pioneer this way with Zoom and cooking yeah. as opposed to the success you already had on the Food Channel? I think it, it gave me much more of an opportunity to be, to be authentic to myself and to cook what my audience had been asking me to cook my whole career. Um, it, it was always hard for me to say, I can't cook these ingredients because uh, the platforms that I am on deem them too difficult or the ingredients are not accessible really? or not recognizable. Oh, 100%. Um, so when I started doing these zoom cooking classes, I'm like, I'm just going to cook what I cook for my family. And I've found the biggest success in my career in working this way versus working the other way. And how do you explain the fascination people have? It seems to be with, with making food, like the food network and chefs like you, they seem to have hit a celebrity status. Not many people foresaw in the eighties and nineties. Why is that? Yeah, I think people, I mean, I can't speak for them, but I can speak like for the recipes that I'm putting out. I think a lot of, you know, where we were talking about the border, I think that for a lot of people, food is a way to connect to a place that's long gone or far away or different country. And I know that's what, that's what I realized in the pandemic during these classes and doing these recipes that the feedback was so huge and so powerful and so beautiful. And they weren't talking about the food. They were talking about the feeling. They were talking about where these, they're like, I haven't had that arroz rojo or that machaca burritos or what, whichever one of these recipes since I was a kid in like Morelia or Michoacan or Tijuana or whatever. So I think it, it becomes it becomes a connector that takes you back to a really beautiful place for most of, most uh, of us. And how do we get it? Uh, Familia is anywhere where books are sold. You know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Talk to your local bookseller. It's all over the place. So. Oh, and you have a book signing? I do. I have a big book signing tonight in Brooklyn at a store called This is Latin America at 5 p.m. And we're going to have aguas frescas and Mexican candies. And we have, we're have expecting so a lot of people. You can't just sign a book. You have to make stuff. Oh, my God. I make it an event. We're giving away so many goodies. You know what it is? I just want to say thank you. In the You know how in cookbooks they always have like chefs gives you quotes and stuff? I ask my followers for quotes and they're in my book and their handles are in my book because I wanted to thank my people, my familia, my followers for everything that they've done for me. Like everything I do is a celebration and I thank you to them because they're the reason I'm sitting with you right now. Gotcha. Yeah. Marcella, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. All right. And pick it up. It's called Familia. And uh, Chef, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. All right. When we come back, uh, we'll be able to find out what else you need to know. I think you need to know more. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. This is why the House has got to change that rule so no one member can vacate. It's going to take the institution down. And the Democrats weren't dumb enough to do this. But the other thing is, you've got to give the Democrats credit for discipline in the modern era. Nancy Pelosi had a five-vote margin, and they were able to hold together as a party. When George Bush was president, under Denny Hastert, the former speaker, Republicans had a five-vote majority in the House. And they were able to get things done and pass them because they were disciplined. The modern Republican Party has got to get its discipline back. Otherwise, the Democrats will own the Republicans, and they did this week. Yeah, no doubt about it, even though 210 voted for the guy the other 
eight got one. So Jim Jordan's trying to run for that spot. And it's going to be fascinating. A lot of people have dire predictions about what, how long it's going to take to get a speaker. You think it's bad now? Just think about how many endless votes you're going to have to get a speaker. If Garrett Graves is, is correct, listen to the congressman from Louisiana, cut 17. We just went from yesterday evicting a speaker to just a few days later jumping in a room and electing a new one. There are raw feelings. There's animosity. I don't think that there's consensus behind any one candidate at this point. More importantly, I think before we jump into that, what's more appropriate is that we actually focus on rule changes that, that provides more stability to the office of the speaker. This is third in line to the presidency. The, 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 the chief of the uh, legislative branch of government, uh, totally inappropriate to have such a low threshold in this. Right. And still, uh, they still voted to do it. And to have that one vote margin was not supposed to be a big deal. Now, I wouldn't know these insider not being in the House. But evidently, Nancy Pelosi went up to Kevin McCarthy when he was considering about what to do next to get the net votes necessary to become speaker. Says they want to just have one vote removal where one person could stand up and vote and just snap his fingers or her fingers and, and vote to remove me from my to vacate the chair. And she goes, don't worry. I told you the same thing I told John and Paul. I will watch your back. And she didn't. She was at Senator Feinstein's funeral and didn't make a phone call or text message to say, watch his back. And that's why some people are upset. I'm personally not upset. I don't expect you to be trusting Nancy Pelosi on anything. I don't, I'm one of the few people in the world never impressed with her. I think she's about for herself. I mean, not even out for San Francisco. Look who said the message she has to represent that town. And meanwhile, she got kicked out of her office, and Steny Hoyer got kicked out of his side office. Because both the, the both party members essentially said, uh, you know, we're not going to give special treatment to Democrats. And you know who's taken his office, her office, at least for nine months? Kevin McCarthy. So that's not going to help. Just a quick thing on Nancy Mace, who is, seems to me extremely bright and extremely politically savvy and ambitious, like almost everybody in the House. And she was calling out Donald Trump for a while. Now praise him once it's worthy. But remember, it wasn't too long ago before Nancy Mace voted for Matt Gates that she said this, cut 20. Matt Gates is a fraud. Every time he voted against Kevin McCarthy last week, he sent out a fundraising email. Uh, what you saw last week was a constitutional process diminished by those kinds of political actions. Um, I don't support that kind of behavior. I am very concerned as someone who represents a lot of centrists, a lot of independents. I have as many independents and Democrats as I have Republicans in my district. I have to represent everybody. Right. Of course you wouldn't have voted with Matt Gates, right? Wrong. She did. She said because there were two issues he didn't bring to the, to the, uh, uh, to the floor. Now, one of the things mentioned, I didn't pull this sound, is Kevin McCarthy coming out in his farewell speech, that one, not speech, uh, press conference that went about an hour and 15 minutes, he was asked about Nancy Mace. He goes, yeah, I called up. I said, I understand you think I lied to you. He got the chief of staff on the phone and says, no, you didn't lie to him. You've done everything you said you would. Then he called back. He said, are you sure? Because it looks like she's going to vote against because you've done everything you said you would. Well, that didn't stop her from doing it. Cut 21. 
Well, I have not been fundraising off of this every step of the way. I made my decision last night. I, I made the decision to fundraise over the last 24 hours because of the threats that I have received over fundraising and money drying up, which is why I need help. The people, the establishment is coming after me. I've gotten a lot of threats from different groups and different members that they will withhold fundraising no matter what. And I do need help from the people. And that was a decision that I made late last night because of everything that was going on. And it is a genuine so ask. And if they want, if, if people want to support the effort, they can go to nancymace.org. Lynn in Orlando. Lynn. Yes. Hi, Brian. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, one thing regarding the Trump property appraisal yes. value trial. I am just curious as to the fact that no one, I'm, I'm frustrated, no one seems to talk about the process of these properties being appraised. The banks hire third-party state board yeah. uh, certified appraisers. It's not like Trump walks in and sits behind the desk, my property's worth this, and they just accept it. And if they did, it's on them. It's not on Trump. If you're going to just go let somebody assess their own house and ask for a price, and then you pay it to them and give them a mortgage at a great rate, that's on you. But that didn't happen. Lynn, great point. But in New York, they could sue you anyway, and they are. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.